You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Happy Easter, church. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles with me, the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, as we conclude a series on Acts chapters 6 through 9, that we've been simply calling Glory Road, Intentional Movement toward what God has for you. I want to remind you that even on this Easter Sunday, our content team, our creative team has put together a devotional that walks right alongside this sermon in Acts chapter 9 that you're about to hear. If you desire to study this more depthly as you continue to follow Christ this week, text the word glory to 45776. I want to tell you this Easter Sunday about this glorious truth that you were changed by Christ to live for Christ. Now, the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, goes to at length to remind us that we are incapable of changing ourselves by ourselves. So despite of how hard we try, despite our education, our best efforts and merits, our reception of positions and titles and favor and sports glories and all of these things, the Bible says it is impossible for us to change ourselves by ourselves. This central premise dominated the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. Remember what our king said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, from out of the abundance of the heart comes all evil things. That regardless of how much and how much money we spend in tweaking the outside of us, it's the inside that must be transformed. In fact, 800 years prior to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 15, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? No. It is within this sense, then, that you and I, with awe and wonder, study the resurrection of Christ. That unlike any other religion ever created by man, it is the gospel alone through Jesus Christ that says God and God alone changes us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That you and I stand in victory this morning in light of the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. For on his cross and through his resurrection, death has died. The reality of our sin is forgiven. It's erased. The penalty and power of our sin is muted and being conquered as the risen Christ now reigns in and through us. Theologically, the Bible says that Jesus Christ died our death to give us his life. Jesus truly does change everything. And the moment that we repent of our sin and believe by faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, the Bible says that you are transformed. That there is an eternal metamorphosis that God does supernaturally through the Holy Spirit in your life. That we are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. The old has passed away. Now the newness in Christ is visible. We have a new purpose. We have a new way of life as a result of us receiving Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Life change is not then something that is fickle, but rather intentional by God. That you can today be a new person 
by the power of Christ and his resurrection. This same Christ that will change Saul of Tarsus can change you. This same Christ that changed John Newton. You say, who in the world is John Newton? John Newton was a man in the 1700s that was lost, carnal, worldly. He was a businessman in every sense of the word. He was a slave trader, heinously seized families in Africa, took them abruptly, mercilessly to the new world. And in 1748, a violent storm arose on one of John Newton's ships. He was in the middle of the Atlantic, headed toward destruction, and immediately he knew his life was in vain. And so he just half-settingly called out to the Lord, save me. God, by his grace, quelched this storm. Newton was convinced that God, by his grace, answered his prayers, and God began to plant a seed in his life of hope and life that could only come from God himself. It was within this start that God began to do a new work in John's life. Ultimately, he would repent of his sin and his lifestyle, and he would wholeheartedly embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and instantly he was changed. He became a preacher and a pastor, a, a missionary, and a, an emancipator of the very slaves that he sought previously before Christ to enslave. It was then about 20 plus years later, that in 1772, that John Newton wrote the greatest song and arguably the greatest hymn the world has ever heard, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I was found. I was blind, but now I see. The greatest song ever written that was sung by the Cherokees in the 1830s on the Trail of Terrors on their way to Oklahoma. That was sung by two nations that had been split apart in the Civil War to bring comfort and solace during this time. That was sung by soldiers in World War I and World War II. That was sung by the great emancipator and civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr. and his people. When the Berlin Wall fell, Germans in their native tongue sang Amazing Grace. Even our own country, going through the, the tragedy of 9-11 at the base and summit of the Twin Towers, there arose an impromptu Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Then men and women from generations, from multiple continents, from century to century, have been singing a song of a man whose life was radically changed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, this same power that can change your life. At the end of his life, John Newton wrote his own epitaph, and he says these words, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel, libertine, servant of slaves in Africa, but now, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. Praise God to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who changed my life. Jesus Christ changed John Newton's life. Jesus Christ today can change your life through the power of the gospel. You see, before the Apostle Paul became the greatest Christ follower the world has ever known, 
The Bible introduces us to him as Saul of Tarsus, the chief enemy of Christ's church, the chief enemy and arch rival of the risen king of the universe in which you and I just sang. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7 that Saul oversees the merciless murder and execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 verse 58. That it is Saul who takes an impetus upon himself to lead in the seizure and arrest of other Christ followers, pulling men and women from their home, moms and dads from their children in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. But God instantly and without warning appears to Saul in Acts chapter 9, for he was on his way to Damascus, receiving permission from the high priest Caiaphas to seize other Christ followers. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, the Bible says that the glory of God, the risen Christ, appears to Saul. That a light shines around him. That in this Christophany, the helplessness and hopelessness of Saul was amplified in light of the holiness of Christ. Saul finds out instantly what every man will find out ultimately. That the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead but alive. That you and I do not worship a statue, that you and I do not worship a thought, that you and I do not worship a philosophy, but no, Christianity adheres to a conviction of a king who is alive, of a king who reigns sovereignly over every aspect of his life. Every molecule, every wind, every creature, every human being goes under the submission of his rule and reign. And it's this king that appears to Saul. It is this king that appears to you today through this text in Acts chapter nine. Instantly, the light of Christ shines in front of Saul. He's humbled, he's crushed, he's removed from his steed. And on his back, he hears and sees the glory of Jesus Christ. And miraculously, he gives his life to Christ. Saul is blinded by his own iniquity, blinded by his own sinful past. But though he could not see physically, for the first time in his life, he was seeing spiritually. And Christ tells him to go. Go to a city in which he will show him. And there will be a man by the name of Ananias. We'll get to him in a minute. And then if Saul does exactly what the Lord Jesus commands... And he will regain his sight. He will fulfill his purpose. And Saul humbly obeys. And these scales will fall from his eyes. And the world will never be the same. You see, Jesus changes not just some of us, but all of us. Paul will surrender his fortune, his fame, his heritage, his education, all of these things to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The impact of Christ will have such an indelible impression upon Saul that he will change his name from Saul, which you know what it means in the Hebrew? You asked for it. He will change his name to Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, which means little. You see... He must increase. We must decrease. The Bible says in John 30, he must become greater. We must become less. It is within the power and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his grace and sovereignty that will now rule and reign 
over Saul's life. And the world has never been the same since. Oh, the same grace and power is available to you by faith this morning. The same mercy and sovereignty is available to you for you are changed by Christ to live for Christ. So why don't we study with fresh eyes this morning the rest of this story in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 21 on this Easter morning. And your Bible says this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus by the name of Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias who will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And let's stop right there. Notice even from the beginning, the King Jesus is immediately, intentionally, and intimately directing all activities of God in Saul's life. The King Jesus knows where Saul is and what Saul is doing. Say, I'll have to say this. You may not know God, but he knows you. This is not a random happenstance that you're here this morning. This is not a random moment that you receive some invitation by a neighbor or a family member to, hey, come hang out with me this Sunday morning. Come to church with me this Sunday morning. It's not random that you have the job you do, the passions that you do. All of these things have been intrinsically given to you by God himself, who knows you and knows where you are in your life. And there is no one who is outside of God's grace. There is no one who is too far from the grace and mercy received through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not John Newton, not Saul of Tarsus, not me, not you. You may not know God, but he knows you. So who is Ananias? God comes to just a random, ordinary man by the name of Ananias. The amazing thing is, is that Ananias is really only detailed in this specific section of the book of Acts. We never hear from this man again until glory. Who was Ananias? He was just a devoted Christ follower who over and over and over again in this text obeys expectantly to what it is that God has asked him to do. Now here's something fascinating. Historically, Ananias is more than likely one of the leaders of the church of Damascus. Remember Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9 was entrusted by the high priest Caiaphas to go to Damascus to seize and to arrest Christ followers there? More than likely, his primary target was Ananias. And here it is God coming to Ananias and saying, hey, I want you to go to Saul and minister him to encourage him. What would you have done? And so what I believe is a means of comforting. What I believe is a, a means to show Ananias that God is in complete control of all facets. That God and God alone can take the worst of this world, the worst of men, and bring his best. He tells Ananias what Saul is doing at the end of verse 11. Look at it. For Saul is praying. You see, Ananias doesn't know what you and I know. The Saul of Tarsus, the moment he meets the risen Christ, 
He is bankrupt, yet secure. He's in isolation, but he's not alone. For all Saul of Tarsus has left his Christ. And thus all Saul of Tarsus needs his Christ. Saul has gone three days, the Bible says in verse 9. Without eating, without drinking, he's in complete dependence upon God in all facets of his life. I'll remind you that Saul was a Jew by birth, a Pharisee by conviction. He was a devoted religious man who had intentionally given his life to the study of the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law over and over and over again. The Pharisees had prayers for everything. But yet for the first time in his life, Saul of Tarsus is wrestling with the sovereign reality that he was not seeking God, that God was seeking him. That God found him. And the same God that finds Saul can find you this morning. And so all Saul can do now is pray. Totally dependent upon the work of the Lord. And the world is about to never be the same since. You see, we can never say your kingdom come until our kingdom goes. Have you completely surrendered your life, all of it, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you cried out to God for anything? When was the last time that you asked God's wisdom, God's counsel for something? When was the last time you came before the Lord and said, I'll do whatever you want. Have your will in my life. Take all of me, not just part of me. Saul here is completely surrendered to the controlling authority, the sustaining presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything from this moment forward in Saul's life will be for the glory, not of Saul, but of Jesus. And it'll be in God's sovereignty for Saul's good. Now Saul, as a Pharisee, had relentlessly had this reputation that preceded himself. Ananias and those Christ followers at Damascus knew of Saul's ruthless persecution, his relentless pursuit of other Christ followers. And so Ananias was rightfully concerned and hesitant in verses 13 and 14. But look what God says in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. God commands Ananias to go. I am sending you to Saul. For Saul will be the means in which I will communicate my gospel to kings and to servants and anyone in between. It will be Saul of Tarsus that will be God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the rest of the world, not just to Jews only, but to Gentiles. Can I tell you that God had you in mind in Acts chapter 9, verse 15? That it will be the obedience first of Ananias, 
that will lead to you and I 2,000 years later ultimately hearing this same gospel. You see, each and every one of us have a role in God's kingdom. You may be asking yourself this morning, well, what can I do? I'm just ordinary. I don't have any gifts. I'm not theologically trained. I don't sense necessarily a calling. Don't believe a minute of it. You're a child of the living God. You're a servant of the king of the universe. The risen Christ resides in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have been called to follow him wherever he goes, wherever he takes you. All that you have is his. And God can do, I assure you, much with little. It will be the faith of Ananias that will ignite the gospel through Saul. You see, in order for God to send Saul to the nations, he first sent Ananias to Saul, his chosen instrument. You ever played an instrument before? Man, I have a time in my life. When I was in sixth grade, I was hanging out in central Oklahoma. And our school system there mandated that in sixth grade, that every student would go through a performing arts track and had to take place in the band. And so one semester, you were in performing arts. The next semester, you were in the band. So the first semester, I was in the choir. And man, I was singing some of the greatest solos the world has ever heard. I was singing so low, you couldn't hear me, all right? And so by God's grace, I got through that. The next semester, we were in the band. Now, I wanted to play the drums. I wanted to make a joyful noise loudly to the Lord. But my parents wisely said, nah, not in our house. Not going to happen. And so my mom was from Tuttle, Oklahoma. And she was a drum major in Tuttle. And she played the cornet. So guess which instrument my parents providentially assigned to me to play? the cornet, and I was awful. I ushered out such sounds that no one should ever hear again. You say, how bad was it? It was a combination of a kazoo and a duck call all at the same time. It was awful. In fact, in my recital in sixth grade, I was so bad in playing the cornet, the band director literally said, Maddie, if you'll stop, I'll give you an A minus, all right? Just stop playing. It was that bad. I'd resolved from henceforth that I was no longer going to play an instrument. I was going to play the air guitar, all right? And I rocked that, by the way. So here's something amazing. By God's grace, at the end of the school year, we ended the school year every single year with a band concert. And so it wasn't just me alone. It was me with... 100 plus of my classmates. And before you know it, you could no longer hear just my cornet, but, but this group of horns mixed beautifully with all of these other instruments that played this glorious melody to melody to melody. And at the end of this performance, there wasn't a dry eye in the auditorium. What was once isolated confusing, was now part of something greater, more meaningful. You see, many of you, you go your entire life and you wonder, have I made an impact? Is my small faith enough? Can I tell you that God, by a way of life, 
can take your life and can take what you bring to him and can bring it within the synergy of his people to make an impact from generation to generation in which only he gets the glory. Changed by Christ to live for Christ. Without the faith and obedience of Ananias, there is no apostle Paul. Who is it in your life that God is saying, be faithful? Trust me. Point them to Jesus. Oh, may your world and the world never be the same. So as God continues to move through these men, God reminds Ananias that Saul's ministry will not be without suffering and struggle. Look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That unspeakable suffering will lay ahead for Paul. The irony is, is that the great persecutor of the church of Christ will be persecuted for Christ. So it's within this beautifulness of God's gospel and faithfulness that Ananias trusts God and his word. He quickly obeys and he affectionately shows Christ-like love and grace to Saul. And in verses 17 through 19, the Bible says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Paul, for the first time in his life, was completely under the active control of the Holy Spirit. Complete and total submission to what God was asking him to do is the intended meaning in verse 17. You see, the Spirit of God is the only thing that, complete, that can completely satisfy the spirit of man. It is this sense that Paul will never get over. In fact, did you realize that Paul will reference the Holy Spirit 132 separate times in his readings? You see, your future is shaped by what you daily fill your life with. Is it control of God's word? Is it an active submission to what he is asking you to do? Or is it something else? Is it someone else? Are you filled daily with the Spirit? Being filled with the Spirit is not something that God does to us, but rather something God does through us by faith. And so as we conclude our time together on this Easter Sunday, I'm gonna give you four ways, four ways to stay filled by the Holy Spirit. The Bible reminds us that the Holy Spirit flows from the word of God. And so keep this imagery in mind when you're daily going through life and asking God to fill you with his spirit. Number one, fix your mind on God and his word. 
Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above. Do not let those things outside of you control what's on the inside. You stay focused on God. You set your mind on God and his word and his purposes. You do not allow your news feed to dominate how you see and translate life. You do not allow your text, phone calls, emails, IMs to dictate what God has for you each and every day. No, you fix your mind on God and his word. Secondly, you then intentionally lay your burdens at his feet. Think all of these things are trying to imprint us, to impact us. No, you intentionally set those aside. You immediately place those at the feet of King Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30? He says to a group of hardened Christ followers, life is tough. Life is fragile. Life is unexpected. What are we to do, Lord? He says, take my yoke upon you, he says, for my burden is light. Jesus uses here an agricultural imagery. He takes a, a yoke. What was used by farmers to work the land, to produce fruit, to produce crops that provided sustenance and life. Jesus takes this imagery of a yoke. Are you ready for this? That farmers would use a strong ox with a weak ox. No farmer would ever put two strong oxes together. That would be chaos. But no, they would put a weak ox who would follow a strong ox. And the imagery here is that Jesus alone is the strong ox. He is the one that pulls and directs and guides our lives. We are to then faithfully submit to what he has for us each and every day. And every burden we give to him, every glory we give to him, as we continue to be filled daily by the Spirit. Thirdly, then, we obey immediately what God says. Overwhelmingly throughout the book of Acts, you'll find this divine pattern over and over and over again. God's people will pray for direction 25 separate times in the book of Acts. They will then immediately obey as he continues to instruct and work in his life. And God blesses time and time again. It is the same pattern that God desires for you to live out. That you are to seek the Lord. Fix your mind on God and his word. You are not to be distracted or sidestepped with any of these calamities or worries or struggles. No. You are then to obey. You're to follow what it is you believe God is asking you to do. In alignment with his word. For the glory of his son. May you be daily filled by the Spirit. Finally, you then walk by faith, not by sight. It is this moment that will forever leave a foundation and impression in Saul's life. Paul's entire ministry will be summarized by 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. You and I have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow, what is going to happen months from now. But you and I know who's in charge. And we know the same king who's been so gracious to sustain us through our past, to forgive us of whatever it is that we wholeheartedly gave our lives to before King Jesus, is now the same king that will lead us and guide us to follow him until we are all together again. 
by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has changed us so that we can live for him. It is immediately Saul who was baptized, who identifies publicly as a follower of Christ. And then Paul spends several days with the disciples at Damascus, the Bible says in verse 19. He, he follows the imagery of a true Baptist and that he's filled by the Spirit, baptized, hanging out with other people, and then he eats and eats well. And everyone said, amen. And the world has never been the same. That Saul from the outset begins his ministry by preaching Jesus, who Christ is and who he alone can do as God. It is this gospel that you and I have been entrusted with. It is this pattern of life that you and I are to imitate and emulate in our life. We are to daily be filled by the Spirit. We are then to share and show this gospel. We are to take the truth that liberated us for as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And we're to take this truth that Christ has done what only God can do. That through this gospel, he has done this work in us. That in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God has reversed the curse of Adam, our first father. That God has placed upon his son the chastisement of the world, the iniquity of the world, the evil of the world. My sin and your sin. And God judged us as positionally as we were with Christ. And now as Christ is raised, the debt and penalty and power of our sin can be paid for in full through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God, through faith in Christ, exchanges our sin and gives his righteousness, removes our death and gives us his life, takes our past and exchanges his future. For the glory of God alone in Jesus Christ. It is remarkably the story and truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that sets the foundation for the entire ministry of the book of Acts from henceforth. And the world has never been the same. Jesus is alive, He's alive in us, He's King of the universe. Is he your king? He's changed those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can change you today. May we be disciples as we travel down this glory road for whatever it is God has for us. As we walk out of here and leave this place, may we be changed by Christ to live for Christ. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.